Hi there, I'm Michelle Musi, the irreverent, feisty, but irresistible author of Love Capades. And I'm Sally Kaplan, Michelle's partner in crime as her editor and clever co-host on this audio adventure. Welcome everyone to the Love Capades podcast. Welcome to episode three of the Love Capades podcast. In the last episode, a lot happened. Michelle navigated her college years at Stanford and spent six months in Italy where she had her first Italian romance. She then returned home to face a huge challenge, which sent her once again back to Italy, her happy place. We start off this time with one of her most exciting love capades. Here we go. Eventually, Nicola managed to get leave on a Sunday and invited me to spend the day in Siena. I'd been to Siena during my Stanford sojourn, but not with the same agenda. Sometimes my life feels like the endless loop of a movie reel, and the main scene in this short film delights me to this day. It makes me smile from the lips on my face all the way down to the ones below. Nicola had booked a hotel room for the day. One would have to be a nincompoop not to know what my doctor boyfriend had in mind. I don't recall the pretext upon which he managed to lure me inside that room. It must have been something clever, because I do remember being seduced that day was not on my agenda. Unfortunately, I was still shackled by some of my prudish tendencies. The early sex the silly Victorian mores, the abortion, all combined to wreak havoc with my psyche. One would think that at the age 22, I'd be as anxious to spend time in that bed as Nicola was. Yet I was still confused and conflicted. But there we were. The bed was big, a European one that was actually two twins pushed together. The sheets, white and crisp. The window shutters were slightly ajar, so a gentle golden light filtered into the room, and the breezes softly tousled the drapes. Given all that atmosphere, I can't believe I still made the man beg. I said no in a dozen different ways, but each time the patient doctor, practicing his best bedside manner, would listen, then touch me gently in a different place on my body. I sat on top of the bed, legs outstretched, leaning against the headboard, while Nicholas straddled the side of the bed. First, he held my hand. Next, he gently stroked my cheek, then let his hand slide down to touch my breast. He was not in a hurry, but deliberate. With each touch, I began to trust him more and could feel my fear and shame subsiding. Finally, when he moved close enough to kiss me, my resistance evaporated like dew in the morning sun. I arched my body towards his, and we came together for the first time. Just as his tenacity had gotten me to say yes to the first date, he had patiently persevered in finally getting me to make love with him. Nicola had succeeded in breaking down my barriers. He'd shattered the last of my uptight inclinations, for which I am forever grateful. From that moment forward, I was all in, and it would become the best sex I'd ever have. Romantic, creative, insistent, passionate. Remembering this special liaison makes me hearken back to my earlier premise. The best relationships start when the man desires you more than you him. Another bonus was that because Nicola was a doctor, he could prescribe birth control pills. By the mid-1960s, the pill had become the gold standard of birth control. Using them made me feel like a woman. Now we move on to the chapter called Tivoglio Bene. The trail of my love trysts eventually traveled from Florence all the way to Palermo. Once Nicola and his friend Antonio had finished their army stint and left for home, Marlo and I decided it was time to head south to Rome. Here is where my travel mate got tangled up with a real papagallo. 
Antonio was slick and practiced in the art of seducing American girls. And to be fair, Marlowe had spent several weeks as a voyeur to my affair with Nicola. It was her turn for attention and my turn to sit on the sidelines. For three tortured weeks, I nibbled my knuckles and yearned to see Nicola. Ultimately, Il Papagallo showed his true colors, and Marla was finally ready to get back in the Porsche and drive southward. What are those colors, you might ask? It's like this. After charming the pants off a young damsel, literally, the lure of the chase beckons the Papagallo again, and he needs to move on to new conquests. This behavior is the ultimate in rascally rakishness and gets old very quickly. If you stay in Italy long enough, you learn strategies to fend off the parrot people. A strong va via may work, which means go away. Or better yet, the famous crooked arm gesture, which basically means fuck off. En route to Palermo, Marlo and I enjoyed pizza in Napoli and delighted in the shimmering blue grotto on the Isle of Capri. By the way, I learned that for my taste, at least, pizza always had to be ordered senza pesce, or without those awful anchovies strewn all over most Neapolitan orbs of deliciousness. Finally, we arrived at a spot where we could ferry from the mainland of Italy to the island of Sicily. We were both nervous because, for truth or dare, nightmare mafia stories had invaded our psyches. Most of them were dramatic depictions drawn from American movies of mysterious disappearances, murder, and mayhem. And then there were those wartime decapitations. But I overcame my trepidations because my lover awaited anxiously for my arrival. Once on the island, we drove along the scenic, serpentine Sicilian coastline and stopped at a trattoria for late lunch. Again, I recall the meal, for it was the first time I'd ever eaten rabbit. It tasted much like chicken and had been stewed in a rich, succulent sauce. Delizioso! While dining, I told Marlowe how excited I was to finally see Nicola again. All my communications with Nicola had been by telephone, of course, as cell phones and texting were years in the future. The plan was for us to call him once we had arrived on the outskirts of Palermo. It was dark by the time we arrived at our destination, and the two of us waited nervously on a roadside along a beach area lined with those little changing cabins for bathers. They looked just like many versions of the famous Painted Lady Victorians in San Francisco, all in a row, and painted the most delectable pastel colors. After a short while, Nicola arrived in the family Lancia with his brother, yet another Antonio. You can imagine my delight, a rendezvous on a beach outside Palermo with my tall, handsome lover. He looked relaxed, yet also relieved to see me, and was wearing casual clothes, so different from the formality of his army uniform. A short-sleeved shirt was open at the collar with several buttons undone. Seeing him again made me come undone, too. After a sensual embrace and a deliciously long welcome kiss, Nicola took my hand. By the way, Ingrid Bergman once said, quote, a kiss is a lovely trick designed by nature to stop speech when words become superfluous. Without a word, he led me directly to one of those colorful beach cabins, opened the door, and urgently made love to me on the sandy floor. It took my breath away then, and it does now. It's a reminder, however, to savor those moments fully in real time. For as lovely as they are to recapture later, the recollections come with a tinge of longing and melancholy for things never to be again. What happened over the next several weeks for me was sheer heaven. Poor Marla was thrust back into the minor role, patiently playing along with my star billing. I don't think I gave her enough credit at that time. We found a really inexpensive pensione with the help of our Sicilian hosts. It was kind of grotty, but for $2 a day, what could you expect? Luckily, we didn't spend much time there. 
The best part of our room was the public telephone right outside the door. When the phone rang, I knew it was Nicola calling with the day's agenda. He had to be in clinic every day as part of his residency, but every evening became a new adventure. We, same four, fell back into our Florence routine, following the pattern to dine every night in a different place. Antonio and Marla were once again doing their best to be good sports. It helped that Marla had even learned a little Italian by that time. Most often, the eatery would be in a waterfront restaurant in Mondello, the fancy beach suburb where many of Palermo's wealthiest families keep villas. Nicola would gather his friends, and we'd all dine on seafood delicacies and drink local wine. I remember disdainfully crinkling up my nose the time Nicola ordered squid, and his plate arrived with the tentacle swimming in black ink. Not something my family's French-oriented cuisine had included. These evenings were jocular and full of levity. I strained to keep up with all of the banter in Italian, but thankfully my conversation abilities improved quickly. Where my Italian really got better, as I've declared to friends many times over the years, was between the sheets. There's something about bed talk that is focused and indelible. Those private language lessons were yet another gift of our affair of the heart. As fate would have it, I would be able to offer the same favor to another lover years later. Nicola was so Italian in the way he could love. It was spontaneous and graceful how lovemaking happened. Natural and never forced. Sex was as normal as breathing in and breathing out. And my honey was ever ready, like the Energizer Bunny. Sometimes Nicola would exhibit lightning bolts of passion which always made me deliriously happy. I remember very fondly the night my lover whisked me from the restaurant and planted me in that fancy lancha. Before I knew it, he'd driven the car into the middle of an olive grove and parked under the stars. You can imagine what came next. Clothes flung willy-nilly and limbs twisted into new positions. This lovemaking lasted until dawn, when the sun began to illumine the silver of the olive leaves. Over those hours, Nicola held me in his arms and said to me tenderly, more than once, Ti voglio bene. It took me a long time to grasp its true meaning. Literally, that is, I want you well. But that doesn't capture its essence. Ti voglio bene, when used between lovers, means I care for you deeply. I want the best for you. It also means I love you, but in a sweeter way than ti amo, which precisely means I love you. Whatever the dictionary may describe, the way Nicola whispered ti voglio bene in my ear made me feel adored and adorable. It makes me cry to think of it. A few weeks into our Sicilian sojourn, I received a letter from my father, which had arrived at the local American Express office. His message was short and not very sweet. Dear Michelle, leave Sicily immediately. Your father. This command fell on deaf ears, of course. I wasn't about to leave, and I knew there wasn't much he could do about it. Rarely have I ever let a man dictate to me what to do, not even my father. His instincts were partially right, however, based on his experiences in the war. A tinge of danger lurked still. Just about everywhere Nicola and I went in Palermo, we had a shadow. Nicola's girlfriend before I came into his life, her name was Marika, followed us in her Fiat 500, in Italian known as a Cinquecento. This felt creepy and mafia-like to me. Jealousy is an overindulged emotion in Sicily, and here it was on full display. She even followed us 75 miles the day we went to the beach near Erice, a charming medieval hill town on the western coast. While we lollygagged and loved by the seaside, she was spying on us. Nicola didn't seem to be bothered much, but it definitely unsettled me. That was also the day that we bestowed each other with nicknames. 
those little love labels that signal affection. I confess I have no idea where these came from, but they stuck. Nicola was Orospo and I was Orospacha. Toad and Naughty Little Toad, respectively. Silly, sweet names that took on a life of their own. And names that appeared in the many love letters I later received from Nicola. Perhaps the most captivating memory of this period of our relationship happened back in Mondello. Antonio's family, friend Antonio that is, had an apartment in the Tony suburb which we often used for our rendezvous. The first time Marl and I accompanied the guys to this love pad, I was astonished. And every time after that as well. Picture this scene. Key in the door. Enter the foyer. Turn on the light switch. Instantaneously, the dulcet tones of Astor Gilberto sounded as she sang The Girl from Ipanema. These clever bastards had rigged the record player to start when she flipped the switch. And that wasn't the only switch that got turned on, I promise you. Our routine was the following. Nicola and Antonia would prepare the most delicious spaghetti alla carbonara for dinner. Cream, bacon, parmigiana, pepper, eggs, and pasta. I can still remember twirling the spaghetti around my fork and hurrying it into my mouth before the sauce fell back to the plate. So rich, so delicious, and the perfect aphrodisiac. Then we would repair to separate bedrooms for the main attraction. Every time I hear that song, including at the opening ceremony of the Brazilian Olympics just a few years ago, I'm instantly transported back to those extraordinary Palermo nights. <sighs> After spending more than a month savoring Sicily and relishing my enchanted romance, Marlo and I decided it was time to move our roadshow to Greece. I was so smitten by this time that I really didn't want to leave Nicola, but it was only fair to give Marlo a break from my dreamy dalliance. The night before our departure, Nicola and I shared a sad farewell. My heart was in serious distress for fear we may never see each other again. Early the next morning, there was a knock on our door. It was Nicola, all dressed up, ready to go to the clinic. I about melted in a puddle on the spot. He had brought me the record of a popular song at the time, Non ti scordar di me. In English, this means, don't forget me. He told me he dreamed of me that night, and then, with tears in his eyes, said, Ci vediamo, Michelle. That is to say, we will see each other again. As he turned to leave, my eyes filled again with tears, and I sobbed as if the world were ending. On the way to our Greek sojourn, Marl and I stopped for a few days in Taramina to catch our breath. We stayed at the Jolly Hotel, which had a wonderful view from our terrace of Mount Etna and the sea. While there, we managed some beach time and a side trip to Catania and Syracuse. But none of it was fun because I was gripped by separation anxiety. My body ached and my heart ached. Finally, our spiffy car navigated its way toward Athens, once again taking a ferry that embarked from Brindisi. After a look-see of the Panthenon and a few other sites, we sailed to Mykonos, which we'd heard was the place to be. I remember it is a whitewashed village surrounded by azure seas and alabaster beaches. Vibrant fuchsia bougainvillea draped itself here and there. The beaches and tavernas were beyond alluring. However, as beautiful as Mykonos was, I was still miserable. Heart sickness is like withdrawal from a drug, the drug of love. I'd been on a love high, coupled with the adrenaline of adventure, something I've always been drawn to. The trouble was I had no idea when or if I would be with my lover again. After being in Greece for about a week, Marlo decided it was time to return to Rome. For her, it was the capital of excitement. Once back in the Eternal City, she quickly found a new love interest, 
Maurizio. She fell for him with a vengeance. I say that because their relationship was fraught with jealousy and intrigue. Many a night we would sit outside his apartment building in the Porsche and wait for him to come home. It seemed to me that if you had to spy on your guy, it wasn't really the ideal sort of love connection. But connected they were. Karma is karma. Marlowe ended up living in Rome for four years, working for the UN Food and Agriculture Organization and waiting on Maurizio. They finally did get married and moved back to the States. But as predictable, he remained a wily coyote. On the night of their wedding in San Francisco, a very fancy affair at Grace Cathedral with reception at the Bohemian Club, I found him at a payphone calling another woman. Seriously. They eventually did have two lovely daughters, but it was no surprise to me when the match ended in divorce. Throughout Marlowe's Roman shenanigans, I longed to be with Nicola. Finally, he was able to arrange a two-week vacation away from the clinic and called for me to join him. I was over the moon. Being on a limited budget, I bought a train ticket from Rome to Palermo, not knowing that first class was a must for such journeys. What a ride that was. I was crammed into a small compartment with a large Italian family, kids squirming, salami flying, parents screeching for hours on end. Madonna! For more reasons than I can count, I was ecstatic to be rescued at the train station by my elegant lover. I quivered with excitement as I saw Nicola waiting for me at the end of the platform. When we met, he silently took my hand and my suitcase and guided me to the waiting car, where he leaned down and gave me a welcome kiss that said more than words could have. Nicola could convey more with silence than anyone I have ever known. His body spoke for him. A come-hither look, a touch a kiss. Oh, so erotic. Nicola had our itinerary all figured out. The next morning, we packed up that familiar lancha and drove across the heart of Sicily to Agrigento on the southwestern coast. This scenic hilltop town was founded by the Greeks more than 500 years B.C. To this day, the city and surroundings are replete with Greek temples and other ruins from the Roman and Byzantine eras. It's no surprise that for hundreds of years it has been a desirable tourist choice. Chalky white cliffs overlook expansive white beaches, which is where we spent a lot of our time. When we weren't at the beach, we were in bed or at a trattoria. Two solid weeks of sex, sun, and great food. Nicola didn't speak a word of English, so both my Italian improved and my lovemaking skills along with it. Obviously, I didn't need any practice in knowing how to eat well. One time, while dining in a lovely garden restaurant, he looked at me and said, You just love to eat, don't you? There was no judgment in the remark, only affection. There hasn't been a man before or since who welcomed my fondness for food with such gusto. To be seen by your lover and appreciated for exactly who you are is what we all yearn for in a relationship. No wonder I adored him. By this time, I knew Nicholas goal. His dream was to follow in the footsteps of Christian Barnard, the South African surgeon who had completed the very first heart transplant the year before. This feat captivated my young doctor, and he talked about it all the time. He decided that he would have a better chance of achieving his aim if he were to come to the United States. He wanted to move to California and practice medicine there. Needless to say, I loved this idea, but I told him he'd have to learn English first. Each day of our Agrigento sojourn was languid and luscious, with nothing really to do but be with each other. I have never forgotten those lazy, hazy days of pleasure. Our biggest decisions were when to get out of bed, what and where to eat, and when to get back in bed. 
Unfortunately, it all came to an end far too soon, and we had to return to Palermo, as Nicola needed to be back in the clinic. Before flying back to Rome, no train ride for me this time, there was a dramatic scene that took place one evening on top of Mount Pellegrino. Nicola drove me to the top of the famous hill, parked the car, then turned to me in earnest. He accused me inexplicably of acting in a manner unbecoming a respectable young woman. I should be home with my family, he proclaimed, rather than chasing around Europe unchaperoned. This diatribe shocked me, especially after our lovely time together spent in Agrigento. What had suddenly possessed him? It turned out that Nicola's brother Antonio had been doing his best to defame my good name. Whether he was a fan of Marika, believed that good girls don't wander afar from their families, or whatever screwy bias, he had worked on his brother like water on sand. I was severely tongue-tied after Nicola's outburst while precariously perched atop Mount Pellegrino, so found it especially hard to communicate my thoughts in Italian. But somehow I was able to convey how ridiculous it all was, that I was a sincere young woman in love with him. Thankfully, my message overrode his brother's attempt at sabotage, and the aberration disappeared as quickly as it had appeared. By the time I actually flew away a few days later, Nicola had returned to his irresistible loving self. With very heavy hearts, we drove to the local airport located at Punta Oraisi. This is the very airstrip at which my father had landed his C-47 transport plane during the war. Upon arrival, we noticed there was a huge commotion going on. Press and photographers were everywhere, and I knew they surely weren't for the two of us. As we waited for the Alitalia plane to land, Nicola held me close. My eyes were filled with tears, ready to spill out like a waterfall of sadness. Then suddenly the plane landed, and down the steps came none other than Gina Lola Brigida, the famous sex symbol star of the 50s and 60s. How glamorous she was. I recognized her immediately and was instantly starstruck. But undeterred by the glitz, my gorgeous lover only had eyes for me. He embraced me, then finally needed to let me go. I could see him standing on the tarmac from my seat as the plane took off. That flight back to Rome was excruciating. Leaving Nicola again ripped my heart to shreds. I left Palermo believing that Nicola would follow up on his dream of coming to America. He wrote me many letters in the months that followed my return and always mentioned his dream, in addition to how much he missed me. But after a year or so, the letters stopped with no explanation, and clearly the doctor had not pursued his dream. To this day, I can only speculate as to why he never even made a visit. Life happened, learning English was too daunting, he joined a surgical practice, he married, inertia set in, who knows. As to our affair, what would have happened had I decided to actually marry Nicola? Imagine that I showed up on his doorstep once again and made a case for us to be together. We did love each other. The thing is, as happy as I was living in Italy, I feared that being solely a baby maker and a pasta maker just wasn't going to be enough for me. I cherished my freedom too much and knew that I would likely be one of those first women to have a successful career in still male-dominated world, just as my father had groomed me to be. As things turned out, I did become one of the trailblazers at the very beginning of the women's liberation movement. Still, it had been a very difficult decision because my life felt enchanted the times I lived in Italy. I felt uninhibited, exhilarated, and very feminine. 
This no doubt created an aura that attracted men in a natural way, which didn't happen as easily in the good old U.S. of A. On home turf, I was weighed down by guilt, silly mores, doubts about my chubby body, and perhaps a fear of being dominated, which would spell death to my independence. In Italy, I had nothing to lose and nothing to gain. I was free to be me with no agenda beyond my heart's desires. I'm quite sure I've never achieved that feeling of complete liberation at home. No doubt it's part of the reason I still find myself on a quest learning to love and be loved. So what I love about the beginning of this segment is what you remind us that you had just come out of in your life. I mean, you had been become pregnant with your high school boyfriend. It was, you knew you were pregnant when you were graduating from Stanford. It was a very, very, very lonely time. And thereafter, though, you may have had a brief love affair here and there, nothing very intense. What was it about Nicola? Tell us again that that was able to break you out of this prudish time in your life and lure you in for so long? Well, I still wasn't completely ready for what came, but it was, first of all, I was tall, dark, and handsome. It was those sunglasses. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was also, again, as we've talked about already in the book, it was his persistence. Mm -hmm. He was determined to get me. And that determination, you know, showed up in his many, many messages, his not giving up when I didn't respond to him. He was not giving up. So, and it was so cute, those adorable ladies that used to bring us those trays for breakfast. (laughs) They finally said to me, because he obviously was an elegant guy, and when he spoke on the phone, they could probably figure that out. They said, well, why don't you just call him back? (laughs) So, So I finally, finally did. And, you know, I was scared to death because of all those crazy biases I had about Sicilians, plus all my other stuff that I was dealing with. But anyway, I went to dinner with him, and it was a beautiful restaurant in Fiesole, and that night was just magic. And Mm -hmm. after that night, I just couldn't say no to him. Mm -hmm. So he was a charismatic guy. He was smart. He was handsome. He was sexy, and he wanted me very badly. So that worked. And something that I'm wondering if if it's true or not, that he kind of fits a certain stereotype that people have of the Latin lover. And I'm not saying that in a negative way, but did he fit that stereotype in a positive way for you? Well, again, I, I hadn't had any Latin lovers by that time. <laughs> he was my first. Right. So I wasn't into the stereotype as much as I was just into the one-on-one with him. And he knew how to woo me. He just did. And so I got I got wooed, baby. Mm-hmm. But you did say that he was a great lover in that Italian way. So there's something there that, that made you feel... I see what you mean. So this is my understanding. This is what I've concluded after a fair number of experiences that being my first, Mm -hmm. Latin men are raised to adore women. Now, they may misbehave, but when they are with a woman, that woman is the center of the universe. She's the Madonna. She's the diva. She's the focus of their adoration. And Mm -hmm. as a woman, I'm sure you can agree That's very intoxicating. Mm -hmm. And so, and I've often said it before because I've had the experience, you can be with an Italian man and feel like you are the the most beautiful woman on the planet Hmm. and realize that 10 hours later, he's with another woman who feels the same way. (laughs) (laughs) That was not necessarily the case with Nicola, though. (laughs) No, no, but it is a phenomenon. And Mm -hmm. the point I'm trying to make is it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. because at the time you are the it girl. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is so powerful and delicious. And what's very powerful and 
lovely about hearing this read and remembering the book is back to your sensual nature and your larger-than-life love for adventure. I get the feeling, am I correct, that he really awakened you as a, a full woman, awakened you both in the sexual sense and the sensual sense and the feeling all who you could be for somebody. I think you're right. He milled all those biases, you know, all that fear and shame I had. He he just made me feel that, that was ridiculous, that I was gorgeous and alluring and wonderful. And he fulfilled not only the sexual part of a relationship, but because he truly, really did adore me, you know, I blossomed in that. And he was the first person that made me feel that way. And when I think about Bobby and our relationship, which was still, you know, quite special and has a lot to say for it, Bobby didn't have that Italian cultural ability to make me feel like I was it. I mean, Bobby was a womanizer mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and loved women also, but he didn't love them the same way Italians did. Mm -hmm. And it must have helped that you were introduced to birth control. I mean, let's let's paint the picture a little bit about the time. When you got pregnant, birth control was not really an option for you, right? Yeah. I mean, well, take the reader back to this time in the mid to late 60s, and the birth control had been invented right here in Silicon Valley, and it had overnight become this incredible thing that women could use to keep themselves from getting pregnant. And because he was a doctor, I'll never forget the day I said to him, Nicola, could you please do a prescription for birth control pills? <laughs> And he said, yes, of course. And and that was just, as I said in the book, it made me feel like a woman. Yeah. Here I was having sex with this safe tool. Yeah. yeah. And it was fantastic. And just given that time, I think a lot of women were able for the first time to come into their full sexuality without fearing getting pregnant every single time. And here you were describing it with this amazing love affair. Perfect timing. <laughs> Perfect timing. Yeah. So I want you to go back a little bit because you used an Italian phrase that I'd love to understand a little better, as I'm sure our listeners would. And that's, I might not pronounce it correctly, but I think it's Tivolio Bene. Can you explain that a little bit more and, and how that made you feel when it was used toward you? Well, at the time, it took me quite a while to figure it out. So it's not an easy phrase to understand if you're not Italian. So. Basically, it, it's just a very affectionate way of saying, I cherish you, I, I want the best for you, I love you, I, I, I just, it's such a positive way of saying I care about you. Hmm. And, you know, it's romantic, and he used it that first time in the Olive Grove. Oh my God, what a scene that was. <laughs> And he said it over and over, ti voglio bene, ti voglio bene. Now, you say you learned to speak Italian between the sheets. Did he teach you what it meant, or did you know what it meant? I think at the time I must have tried to get out of him what it meant. <laughs> it's not easy to explain, again, unless you're Italian. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You know, if you're Italian, you know the difference between ti voglio bene and ti amo, right. which means I love you. But to this day, it's still, there's a subtlety to the definition that I probably don't completely understand. Yeah, but you knew, you felt loved by him when he said it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt cherished, I think, is a good word. So I love when you say you learn to speak Italian between the sheets. <laughs> I, love, I love that. Do you want to tell us any more about that, or should I surmise that I get it completely? <laughs> I learned to speak Italian at Stanford in Italy, and... I was, I, I have it, I'm good at languages. So I'd already learned French, I'd learned some Spanish, and here was my third Latin language. So I was pretty adept at Italian. But again, didn't have that much opportunity to practice it when I was back home. And when you're in bed with somebody, at least my experience is if it's an important relationship, you, you linger in bed and you have a chance to communicate and 
I got, you know, that really honed my Italian. And I've, I must have said it a thousand times. I, I improved my Italian between the sheets, that's for sure. <laughs> so something else I love about this segment and the understanding that Nicola really did fully appreciate you was you ate so many delicious meals together and he loved your love for food. He never made you feel shame for that. And the last segment that you read that our listeners might remember, there was some shaming going on with your dad toward you about your body or your love for food or your lust for everything. And I just love that part of him. Well, I've always been a chubby girl. You know, I've always had, I've never been thin, normal sized, whatever. I always had a lot of meat on my bones, <laughs> zoftic, they'd say in Yiddish. So, but that is not the standard that American men generally gravitate to, even though they might want some meat on the bones between the sheets. That's not what they want to present to the public. So uh, the fact that he appreciated my body, <laughs> there's there's a later story that just captures this, but I won't spoil it now. Anyway. But he appreciated your love of food, too. It wasn't just your body. Yeah. He did. <laughs> he did. Did he? He just thought it was adorable. He just, I mean, I, I'll never forget that scene. It was a beautiful garden restaurant. It was a, it was lunchtime, and I was, you know, having something delicious to eat, and I was loving every bite. And he just looked at me in the face, and he said, "You just love to eat, don't you?" <laughs> but I didn't feel embarrassed or, or thought he's judging me. It was just. He was just commenting. He was celebrating you. Affectionately. Yeah. yeah, he was celebrating Yeah, he was, that's a great word. He was celebrating. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit in my, my line of questioning, if that's okay, because I wanted to go to another part of what you read to us today. And it's when you had to leave him. I mean, they say, you know, distance makes the heart grow fonder. But oh my God, what was it like for you when you went back to Rome? You were trying to be nice to your dear friend Marlo, who had been so patient with you, but you were really unhappy. And just describe what that was like, cooling your jets in Rome, as you would say. Well, are you talking about the time after I left Palermo and flew back for the last time? Or are you talking about when we came from Florence and I had to cool my jets? I meant when there you were came two... from Florence and then he, yeah, when you had, were oh. separated from him. Okay, that was the first separation. So yes. we got to Rome, and again, Marlo was picked up by this handsome Papagallo, Antonio. And, you know, he took her for a spin, a ride for three weeks, and I am in the background just in agony because my heart is wanting to be with Nicola, and I'm not interested in meeting anybody in Rome. So I'm just literally cooling my jets and longing for Nicola. And then finally, he got time off from his residency and he called for me to join him and that's when I went down to Palermo for the second time. Yeah. So I I get that it was hard for you to enjoy certain places even Greece when as you think you said your heart and your body were kind of aching. It was sounds like your preoccupation was elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. yeah, I was in love I know. and I wanted to be with him. Yeah. Then there's this letter that you received from your father warning you once again about get the hell out of, out of Sicily, I think he said. Leave Sicily immediately. Leave Sicily immediately, excuse me. Yes. <laughs> and of course, you know, I'm sure there was a piece of you that was shuddered when you heard your dad say that to you. But you weren't about to leave. You were clearly in love. But what's this creepy thing with Nicola's ex girlfriend. I mean, was she clearly an ex? Was it certain that that was done? Well, there is a dark side to Sicily. We all know it. The mafia. And it's, how can I explain it? When you're in Sicily, you can adore it, savor it. But there is this dangerous thing that lurks in the background. And it turns out Marika represented that because mm. she'd been dating Nicola and then he met me, and he wasn't interested in her anymore, but she was possessed. Mm. She was obsessed with him. And in kind of typical jealous, again, jealousy is a thing in Sicily, uh, in jealous fashion, she drove around and followed us everywhere we went. That must have been terribly scary. I mean, it was a thing. Yeah, it must have been so scary for you. 
Well, I used to say, Nicola, what the, she's back there again. What the hell's going on? You see, because it was normal for him. I see. <laughs> being Sicilian, he wasn't bothered, but I was freaking out. Then there was a shocker in this segment that you read to us that I'm going to have to take you back to. And it was Mount Pellegrino. He he completely did a 180 on you and said something to you that, you know, many fear is the European stereotype of American women when American women would visit Europe at that age. And that was just tell me more about that scene. How did that make you feel? How did you work your way through that one? Well, as you as you repeated, it makes me anxious. It was just the weirdest. One eighty is right. It was just a complete turnaround. And what were the words he used again? Remind me. What What did he say? He <laughs> he drove me to the top of Mount Pellegrino, and we were parked along the side of the road where I could look down and see, you know, all the way to the bottom. And he accused me of being a wanton girl from not a ni- not a nice girl that I was roaming around Europe having affairs with men and that I should be home with my family here I was unchaperoned and on the loose and it was he was disgusted by it hmm. and I was just Shocked. flabbergasted yeah. Yeah. I was speechless it was like where the f did that come from yeah well, it later became clear that it was his sicko brother, Antonio, mm. who had put this notion in his head. Mm. And luckily, I was able to somehow gather my wits, explain to him that was ridiculous. And by the next day, it had disappeared as if it never happened. So I can't explain it. Because <laughs> listening, listening to you tell the story, I got concerned and worried that there was a lingering residual peace in him that actually truly thought of you that way. And from what you're saying, absolutely not. It was fed to him by someone and it wasn't right going to last right. long for him. Yeah. Right. So then you talk a little bit later in the segment that you read to us about this dichotomy between becoming the Italian baby maker and pasta maker as a Italian wife and the American woman that you were and pre-lib in a way that you wanted to make yourself into someone and something. And just talk a little bit more about that dichotomy because you were clearly drawn to this wonderful Italian man, but was it an impossible love? I mean, what was going on there? Well, clearly it was time for me to go home. And he actually encouraged me to go home because Hmm. he wanted to think of me as a proper young woman cleaving to her family. And so he pretty much told me to go home. So I went home. But when I went home, I expected he'd follow at some point. Mm -hmm. What I later came to realize, because I did go to Italy again and again. Which we'll hear about in later segments, right? Yes, you will. I realized that I would not have made a good Italian wife if I had to live in Italy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I was, I'm a center stage player Mm -hmm. and most Italian wives don't get that privilege. So it would have been perhaps ideal had Nicola ended up in California. Maybe we could have made it work, but I became aware ultimately that I wasn't going to make it as an Italian wife in Italy. Mm -hmm. So also the, you define for me the epitome of the the poetic adage that many of us have heard again and again, which is, it's better to have loved and lost love than to never have loved at all. And you truly are the epitome of that. And this story of you and Nicola and this part that you read makes that part of you ring so true in such a lovely way to me. Again, I'm grateful to him for many, many things. First of all, it was just a delicious relationship, very romantic. And he did dispel, once and for all, those residual emotions that crippled me in relationship, relationship-wise. So he gave me a lot of that, and he made me feel whole as a woman. And God knows, I, I'm 
to this day, I'm grateful to him for that. And you often say, we know that this love affair with Italy started before Nicola and continues after him. And you often say that you could feel like the awakened woman that you now became in Italy more than anywhere else. It was outside of your culture. I'm wondering if, for Nicola too, falling in love with you was a way to break out of perhaps some of the stereotypes of his culture. Is it is it fair to presume that? I think you could say that's true. I'm sure I had as much influence on him as he did on me in ways that maybe I'm not aware of, but I'm sure that I left a mark on his life. Then just to to kind of close, there was something you said. I don't remember the exact words, but it sticks with me. But it was this idea that when you were having this heaven-on-earth moment with Nicola, looking back, it was such a delicious moment that you reveled in. it. And looking back, there's some nostalgia because you don't appreciate it fully, or many of us don't know to appreciate it fully when we're in the moment. Can you remind us of that? Because I think it's a wonderful message that you have the power to give us and our readers. I think I said it in the excerpt that I read today. When you're in a fully fabulous moment, you need to just delight in it and not let it slide by, but just be in that fabulousness. Because later on, when you look back on it, it's wonderful to remember, but it's kind of sad because you can't get that back again. So my tip, my life tip at this point would be just adore those moments that are adorable and fully experience them. I guess that's what I would say. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for that reminder. Thank you for listening to the Love Capades podcast. If you'd like to submit questions, please send them to michelle at lovecapades.com. And that's spelled M-I-C-H-E-L-E at L-O-V-E-C-A-P-A-D-E-S dot com. Also check out our Facebook page and website, both called Love Capades, for fun facts and groovy visual stuff. I am the author, Michelle Musi, and my co-host is Sally Kaplan. The Love Capades podcast is skillfully and playfully produced by StudioPod Media. You can find them at studiopodsf.com. <laughs>